Story two of In Exile and Other Stories by Mary Hallock Foote. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story two Friend Barton's Concern Part three. He stood opposite her on the hearth rug and looked into her eyes across the estrangement of the summer. It was not Dorothy of the Millhead or of Slocum's Meadow or the cold maid of the well. It was a very anxious, lonely little girl in a crumbling old house, with a foot of water in the cellar and a sick mother in the next room. She had forgotten about Ephraim and his idols. She picked up Shep's trousers from the rug and, looking intently at her thimble finger, told him she was very glad that he had come. "'Did you think I would not come?' said he. "'I'm going to take you home with me, Dorothy, you and your mother and the boys. It's not fit for you to be here alone.' "'Does thee know of any danger?' "'I know of none, but water's a thing you can't depend on. It's an ugly rain. Older men than your father remember nothing like it.' "'I shall be glad to have mother go and Jimmy. The house is very damp. It's an awful night for her to be out, though. She must go, said Evesham, and you must all go. I'll be back in half an hour. I shall not go, Dorothy said. The boys and I must stay and look after the stock. What's that? Evesham was listening to a trickling of water outside the door. Oh, it's from the kitchen. The door has blown open, I guess. Dorothy looked out into the passage. A strong wind was blowing in from the kitchen, where the water covered the floor and washed against the chimney. "'This is a nice state of affairs. What's all this wood here for?' "'The woodshed's under water.' "'You must get yourself ready, Dorothy. I'll come for your mother first in the chaise.' "'I cannot go,' she said. "'I don't believe there is any danger.' This old house has stood for eighty years. It's not likely this is the first big rain in all that time. Dorothy's spirits had risen. Besides, I have a family of orphans to take care of. See here, she said, stooping over a basket in the shadow of the chimney. It was the hospital tent, and as she uncovered it, a brood of belated chickens stretched out their thin necks with plaintive peeps. Dorothy covered them with her hands, and they nestled with comfortable twitterings into silence. "'You're a kind of special providence, aren't you, Dorothy? But I've no sympathy with chickens who will be born just in time for the equinoctial.' "'I didn't want them,' said Dorothy, anxious to defend her management. "'The old hen stole her nest, and she left them the day before the rain. She's making herself comfortable now in the corn-bin.' She ought to be made an example of. That's the way of the world, however. Retribution doesn't fall always on the right shoulders. I must go now. We'll take your mother and Jimmy first, and then, if you won't come, you shall let me stay with you. The mill is safe enough, anyhow. Evesham returned with the chaise and a man who, he insisted, should drive away old John and the cows so that Dorothy should have less care. The mother was packed into the chaise with a vast collection of wraps, which almost obliterated Jimmy. As they started, 
Dorothy ran out in the rain with her mother's spectacles and the five letters which always lay in a box on the table by her bed. Evesham took her gently by the arms and lifted her back across the puddles to the stoop. As the chaise drove off, she went back into the sitting-room and crouched on the rug, her wet hair shining in the firelight. She took out her chickens one by one and held them under her chin with tender words and finger-touches. If September chickens have feelings as susceptible as their bodies, Dorothy's orphans must have been imperiled by her caresses. "'Look here, Dorothy! Where's my trousers?' cried Shep, opening the door at the foot of the stairs. Ruby was behind him, fully arrayed in his own garment aforesaid, and carrying the bedroom candle. "'Here they are, with a needle in them,' said Dorothy. "'What are you getting up in the middle of the night for?' "'Well, I guess it's time somebody's up. Who's that man driving off our cows?' "'Goosey! It's Walter Evesham's man. He came for mother and all of us, and he's taken old John and the cows to save us so much foddering.' "'Ain't we going too?' I don't see why we should, just because there happens to be a little water in the kitchen. I've often seen it come in there before. Well, thee never saw anything like this before, nor anybody else either, said Shep. I don't care, said Ruby. I wish there'd come a regular flood. We could climb up in the mill loft and go sailing down over Jordan's meadows. Wouldn't Luke Jordan open that big mouth of his to see us heave in sight about cock-crow, wing and wing, and the old tackle a-swingin'? Do hush, said Dorothy. We may have to try it yet. There's an awful roaring from our window, said Shep. Thee can't half hear it down here. Come out on the stoop. The old pawns have got their dander up this time. They opened the door and listened standing together on the low step. There was indeed a hoarse murmur from the hills, which grew louder as they listened. "'Now she's coming. There goes the stable door. There was only one hinge left anyway,' said Ruby. "'Mighty! Look at that wave!' It crashed through the gate, swept across the garden, and broke at their feet, sending a thin sheet of water over the floor of the porch. Now it's gone into the entry. Why didn't thee shut the door, Shep? Well, I think we'd better clear out anyhow. Let's go over to the mill. Say, Dorothy, shan't we? Wait, there comes another wave. The second onset was not so violent, but they hastened to gather together a few blankets, and the boys filled their pockets with cookies, with a delightful sense of unusualness and peril almost equal to a shipwreck or an attack by Indians. Dorothy took her unlucky chickens under her cloak, and they made a rush all together across the road and up the slope to the mill. "'Why didn't we think to bring a lantern?' said Dorothy, as they huddled together on the platform of the scale. "'Will thee go back after one, Shep?' "'If Ruby'll go, too.' "'Well, my legs are wet enough now.' What's the use of a lantern? Mighty Moses! What's that? The old mill's got under way, cried Shep. She's going to tune up for kingdom come. A furious head of water was rushing along the race. 
the great wheel creaked and swung over, and with a shudder the old mill awoke from its long sleep. The cogs clenched their teeth, the shafting shook and rattled, the stones whirled merrily round. "'Now she goes it!' cried Shep, as the humming increased to a tremor, and the tremor to a wild, unsteady din, till the timbers shook and the bolts and windows rattled. I just wish father could hear them old stones hum. Oh, this is awful, said Dorothy. She was shivering and sick with terror at this unseemly midnight revelry of her grandfather's old mill. It was as if it had awakened in a fit of delirium, and given itself up to a wild travesty of its years of peaceful work. Shep was creeping about in the darkness. "'Look here! We've got to stop this clatter somehow. The stones are hot now. The whole thing'll burn up like tinder if we don't chalk her wheels. Shep, does thee mean it? Thee'll see if I don't. Thee won't need any lantern either. Can't we break away the race?' Oh, there's a way to stop it. There's the tip trough, but it's downstairs and we can't reach the pole. I'll go, said Dorothy. It's outside, thee knows. Thee'll get awful wet, Dorothy. Well, I'd just as soon be drowned as burned up. Come with me to the head of the stairs. They felt their way hand in hand in the darkness, and Dorothy went down alone. She had forgotten about the tip trough but she understood its significance. In a few moments a cascade shot out over the wheel, sending the water far into the garden. "'Right over my chrysanthemum bed,' sighed Dorothy. The wheel swung slower and slower, the mocking tumult subsided, and the old mill sank into sleep again. There was nothing now to drown the roaring of the floods and the steady drive of the storm. "'There's a lantern,' Shep called from the door. He had opened the upper half and was shielding himself behind it. "'I guess it's Evesham coming back for us. He's a pretty good sort of a fellow after all. Don't thee think so, Dorothy? He owes us something for drowning us out at the sheep-washing.' "'What does all this mean?' said Dorothy, as Evesham swung himself over the half-door and his lantern showed them to each other in their various phases of wetness. "'There's a big leak in the lower dam. I've been afraid of it all along. There's something wrong in the principle of the thing.' Dorothy felt as if he had called her grandfather a fraud, and her father a delusion and a snare. She had grown up in the belief that the mill-dams were part of nature's original plan in laying the foundations of the hills. But it was no time to be resentful, and the facts were against her. "'Dorothy,' said Evesham, as he tucked the buffalo about her, "'this is the second time I've tried to save you from drowning, but you never will wait. I'm all ready to be a hero, but you won't be a heroine.' "'I'm too practical for a heroine,' said Dorothy. "'There! I've forgotten my chickens!' "'I'm glad of it. Those chickens were a mistake. They oughtn't to be perpetuated.' Youth and happiness can stand a great deal of cold water, but it was not to be expected that Rachel Barton would be especially benefited by her night journey through the floods. Evesham waited in the hall when he heard the door of her room open next morning.
Dorothy came slowly down the stairs. He knew by her lingering step and the softly closed door that she was not happy. "'Mother is very sick,' she answered his inquiry. "'It is like the turn of inflammation and rheumatism she had once before. It will be very slow, and, oh, it is such suffering. Why do the best women in the world have to suffer so?' "'Will you let me talk things over with you after breakfast, Dorothy?' "'Oh, yes,' she said. "'There is so much to do and think about. I wish father would come home.' The tears came into Dorothy's eyes as she looked at him. Rest, such as she had never known or felt the need of till now, and strength immeasurable, since it would multiply her own by an unknown quantity, stood within reach of her hand but she might not put it out. Evesham was dizzy with the struggle between longing and resolution. He had braced his nerves for a long and hungry waiting, but fate had yielded suddenly. The floods had brought her to him, his flotsam and jetsam more precious than all the guarded treasures of the earth. She had come, with all her girlish, unconscious beguilements, and all her womanly cares and anxieties, too. He must strive against her sweetness while he helped her to bear her burdens. "'Now about the boys, Dorothy,' he said, two hours later, as they stood together by the fire in the low, oak-finished room, which was his office and book-room. The door was ajar so that Dorothy might hear her mother's bell. "'Don't you think they had better be sent to school somewhere?' "'Yes,' said Dorothy. "'They ought to go to school. But... Well, well, I may as well tell thee the truth. There's very little to do it with. We've had a poor summer. I suppose I've managed badly, and Mother has been sick a good while. You've forgotten about the pond rent, Dorothy. No, she said with a quick flush. I hadn't forgotten it, but I couldn't ask thee for it. I spoke to your father about monthly payments, but he said better leave it to accumulate for emergencies. Shouldn't you call this an emergency, Dorothy? But does thee think we ought to ask rent for a pond that has all leaked away? Oh, there's pond enough left, and I've used it a dozen times over this summer. I should be ashamed to tell you, Dorothy, how my horn has been exalted in your father's absence. However, retribution has overtaken me at last. I'm responsible, you know, for all the damage last night. It was in the agreement that I should keep up the dams. Oh, said Dorothy, is thee sure? Evesham laughed. If your father was like any other man, Dorothy, he'd make me sure when he gets home. I will defend myself to this extent. I've patched and propped them all summer, after every rain, and tried to provide for the fall storms. But there's a flaw in the original plan. Thee said that once before, said Dorothy. I wish thee wouldn't say it again. Why not? Because I love those old mill dams. I've trotted over them ever since I could walk alone. You shall trot over them still. We will make them as strong as the everlasting hills. They shall outlast our time, Dorothy. "'Well, about the rent,' said Dorothy, 
I'm afraid it will not take us through the winter unless there is something I can do. Mother couldn't possibly be moved now, and if she could it will be months before the house is fit to live in. But we cannot stay here in comfort unless thy mother will let me make up in some way. Mother will not need me all the time, and I know thy mother hires women to spin. She'll let you do all you like if it will make you any happier. But you don't know how much money is coming to you. Come, let us look over the figures. He lowered the lid of the black mahogany secretary, placed a chair for Dorothy, and opened a great ledger before her, bending down with one hand on the back of the chair, the other turning the leaves of the ledger. Considering the index and the position of the letter B in the alphabet, he was a long time finding his place. Dorothy looked out of the window over the tops of the yellowing woods to the gray and turbid river below. Where the hemlocks darkened the channel of the glen, she heard the angry floods rushing down. The formless rain-mists hung low and hid the opposite shore. "'See,' said Evesham, his finger wandering rather vaguely down the page, "'your father went away on the 3rd of May. The first month's rent came due on the 3rd of June. That was the day I opened the gate and let the water down on you, Dorothy. I'm responsible for everything, you see, even for the old you that was drowned.' His words came in a dream as he bent over her, resting his unsteady hand, heavily on the ledger. Dorothy laid her cheek on the date that she could not see, and burst into tears. "'Don't! P please don't!' he said, straightening himself and locking his hands behind him. "'I am human, Dorothy.' The weeks of Rachel's sickness that followed were perhaps the best discipline Evesham's life had ever known. He held the perfect flower of his bliss unclosing in his hand, yet he might barely permit himself to breathe its fragrance. His mother had been a strong and prosperous woman. There had been little he had ever been able to do for her. It was well for him to feel the weight of helpless infirmity in his arms as he lifted Dorothy's mother from side to side of her bed, while Dorothy's hands smoothed the coverings. It was well for him to see the patient endurance of suffering, such as his youth and strength defied. It was bliss to wait on Dorothy and follow her with little watchful homages, received with a shy wonder which was delicious to him. For Dorothy's nineteen years had been too full of service to others to leave much room for dreams of a kingdom of her own. Her silent presence in her mother's sick-room awed him. Her gentle, decisive voice and ways, her composure and unshaken endurance through nights of watching and days of anxious confinement and toil, gave him a new reverence for the powers and mysteries of her unfathomable womanhood. The time of Friend Barton's return drew near. It must be confessed that Dorothy welcomed it with something of dread and that Evesham did not welcome it at all. On the contrary, the thought of it roused all his latent obstinacy and aggressiveness. 
The first day or two after the momentous arrival wore a good deal upon every member of the family, except Margaret Evesham, who was provided with a philosophy of her own that amounted almost to a gentle obtuseness and made her a comfortable non-conductor, preventing more electric souls from shocking each other. On the morning of the fourth day, Dorothy came out of her mother's room with a tray of empty dishes in her hands. She saw Evesham at the stairhead, and hovered about in the shadowy part of the hall till he should go down. "'Dorothy,' he said, "'I'm waiting for you.' He took the tray from her and rested it on the banisters. "'Your father and I have talked over all the business. He's got the impression that I'm one of the most generous fellows in the world. I intend to leave him in that delusion for the present.' Now, may I speak to him about something else, Dorothy? Have I not waited long enough for my heart's desire? Take care, said Dorothy softly. Thee'll upset the teacups. Confound the teacups! He stooped to place the irrelevant tray on the floor, but now Dorothy was halfway down the staircase. He caught her on the landing, and taking both her hands, drew her down on the step beside him. "'Dorothy, this is the second time you've taken advantage of my trusting nature. This time you shall be punished. You needn't try to hide your face, you little traitor. There's no repentance in you. If I'm to be punished, there's no need of repentance.' "'Oh, is that your Quaker doctrine? Dorothy, do you know I've never heard you speak my name except once and then you were angry with me. When was that? The night I caught you at the gate? You said I'd had rather have one of these dumb brutes for company than thee, Walter Evesham. You said it in the fiercest little voice. Even the thee sounded as if you hated me. I did, said Dorothy promptly. I had reason to. Do you hate me now, Dorothy? Oh, not so much as I did then. What an implacable little Quaker you are! A tyrant is always hated, said Dorothy, trying to release her hands. If you will look in my eyes, Dorothy, and call me by my name just once, I'll let thee go. Walter Evesham, said Dorothy, with great firmness and decision. No, that won't do. You must look at me, and say it softly, in a little sentence, Dorothy. Will thee please let me go, Walter? Walter Evesham was a man of his word, but as Dorothy sped away, he looked as if he wished that he was not. The next evening Friend Barton sat by his wife's easy-chair, drawn into the circle of firelight, with his elbows on his knees and his head between his hands. The worn spot on top of his head had widened considerably during the summer, but Rachel looked stronger and brighter than she had done for many a day. There was even a little flush on her cheek, but this might have come from the excitement of a long talk with her husband. "'I'm sorry thee takes it so hard, Thomas. I was afraid thee would. But the way didn't seem to open for me to do much.' I can see now that Dorothy's inclinations have been turning this way for some time, 
though it's not likely she would own it, poor child. And Walter Evesham's not one who is easily gainsaid. If thee could only feel differently about it, I can't say but that it would make me very happy to see Dorothy's heart satisfied. Can't thee bring thyself into unity with it, father? He's a nice young man. They're nice folks. Thee can't complain of the blood. Margaret Evesham tells me a cousin of hers married one of the Lawrences, so we are kind of kin after all. I don't complain of the blood. They're well enough placed, as far as the world is concerned. But their ways are not our ways, Rachel. Their faith is not our faith. Well, I can't see such a very great difference come to live among them. By their fruits ye shall know them. To comfort the widow and the fatherless, and keep ourselves unspotted from the world? These always preached that, father. I really can't see any more worldliness here than among many households with us. And I'm sure if we haven't been the widow and the fatherless this summer, we've been next to it. Friend Barton raised his head. Rachel, he said, look at that. He pointed to an ancient sword with belt and trappings, which gleamed on the panelled chimney-piece, crossed by an old queen's arm. Evesham had given up his large sunny room to Dorothy's mother, but he had not removed all his lares and pinates. Yes, dear, that's his grandfather's sword, Colonel Evesham, who was killed at Saratoga. Why does he hang up that thing of abomination for a light and a guide to his footsteps, if his way be not far from ours? Why, father, Colonel Evesham was a good man. I dare say he fought for the same reason that thee preaches, because he felt it to be his duty. I find no fault with him, Rachel. Doubtless he followed his light, as thee says, but he followed it in better ways, too. He cleared land, and built a homestead and a meeting-house. Why doesn't his grandson hang up his old broad-axe and ploughshare, and worship them, if he must have idols, instead of that symbol of strife and bloodshed? Does thee want our Dorothy's children to grow up under the shadow of the sword? There was a stern light of prophecy in the old man's eyes. Maybe Walter Evesham would take it down said Rachel simply, leaning back and closing her eyes. I never was much of a hand to argue, even if I had the strength for it. But it would hurt me a good deal, I must say it, if thee should deny Dorothy in this matter, Thomas. It's a very serious thing for old folks to try to turn young hearts the way they think they ought to go. I remember now, I was thinking about it last night, and it came back as fresh. I don't know that I ever told thee about that young friend who visited me before I heard thee preach at Stony Valley. Well, father, he was wonderful pleased with him, but I didn't feel any drawing that way. He urged me a good deal, more than was pleasant for either of us. He wasn't at all reconciled to thee, Thomas, if thee remembers. I remember, said Thomas Barton, it was an anxious time. Well, dear, if father had insisted and had sent thee away, I can't say but life would have been a very different thing to me. I thank thee for saying it, Rachel, friend Barton's head drooped. 
Thee has suffered much through me. These had a hard life, but these been well beloved. The flames leaped up and flickered in the chimney. They touched the wrinkled hands, whose only beauty was in their deeds. They crossed the room, and lit the pillows where, for three generations, young heads had dreamed, and gray heads had watched and wearied. Then they mounted to the chimney, and struck a gleam from the sword. "'Well, father,' said Rachel, "'what answer is thee going to give Walter Evesham?' "'I shall say no more, my dear. Let the young folks have their way. There's strife and contention enough in the world without my stirring up more. And it may be I'm resisting the master's will. I left her in his care. This may be his way of dealing with her.' Walter Evesham did not take down his grandfather's sword. Fifty years later another went up beside it, the sword of a young Evesham who never left the field of Shiloh. And beneath them both hangs the portrait of the Quaker grandmother, Dorothy Evesham, at the age of sixty-nine. The golden ripples, silver now, are hidden under a round-eared cap. The quick flush has faded in her cheek, and fold upon fold of snowy gauze and creamy silk are crossed over the bosom that once thrilled to the fiddles of Slocum's barn. She has found the cool greys and the still waters, but on Dorothy's children rests the shadow of the sword. End of Story 2 Part 3